We're turning now to John chapter 6. A reminder, if you're uh, visiting or maybe you haven't been with us uh, the last week, we started an, a new sermon series last Sunday looking at the various covenants in Scripture. Uh, it was a bit of an introduction sermon uh, last time. And so this actually is the first covenant we're taking up that we find in Scripture. That's the covenant of redemption. And we're doing so um, by considering the words of Christ in John chapter 6. If you've never heard of the covenant redemption, don't worry. Uh, many people haven't, but um, I think you will be exhilarated to learn of it today from such a wonderful and sweet text. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 38. Jesus, speaking to the multitudes, says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. And now to the preaching of it. If you haven't seen it, um, downstairs in our office we have blown up and hanging, I think found by maybe Jen Taylor. Um, Print Mill put it up nice and and pretty for us. But we have the blueprints for uh, this building. The original blueprints for this building back when it was to be constructed uh, back then as First Protestant Church of Kalamazoo. And it's a really... You know, neat thing to, to stand there and to look at these blueprints. and sort of like you're, you're sent back in time, some 70 years, to see what the idea was while you're standing in 2022 at the reality of it. Um, of course, without the blueprints, there would have been no reality. The work needed blueprints if it was to come to fruition. Every successful project has a plan. Every successful project has a plan. Measure twice, cut once, right? That's the workman's motto. Uh, what, what builder uh, would, would set out to, to construct a home ad lib? Or what um, you know, vehicle manufacturer, car company, would, would introduce a new line of cars without first seeing a model? And maybe you're thinking about your clunker, and you're like, no, I think my car was that that vehicle that they introduced without doing any kind of uh, preliminary testing. Uh, what political candidate would, would set out without a campaign strategy? Every successful project starts with a plan. And in the same way, the greatest project of all, the project of salvation, the work of salvation, which we read of in, in this text in John chapter 6, it also came with a blueprint, and we call that blueprint the covenant of redemption. So last time, as we began to think about covenants, we established that a covenant is a binding relationship uh, between parties, and that, 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 that binding relationship is, is founded upon a promise, a big promise, a, a promise that is, is so big that it can't be easily rejected. It can't be easily severed, the relationship that that promise 
creates. And this is how God interacts with us through covenants. He enters into these binding promises with his people. He is a God of promise. But what the covenant of redemption teaches us is that before we ever even enter the picture, God was already making promises. Before we ever entered the picture, God was already making promises. Before there was a covenantal bond between God and his people, there was a covenantal bond within God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, committing to one another to this work of salvation, uh, uh, making a a commitment, a a plan, a, a covenant. And because that plan is founded upon the promises of a God who cannot lie, it means you shall be saved. That's what we're going to learn today. You have every reason to be assured of your salvation. Every reason never to doubt your salvation because your salvation came with a plan. With a promise. A promise made within the triune God, no less. Now, there are no Bible verses that use the term covenant of redemption. I recognize that, but for that matter, there are no Verses that use the term covenant of grace or or covenant of works either. But a careful reading of the scriptures indicates for us that God's work of salvation was not a spontaneous decision on his part, but something that was planned for eternity. Numerous scripture passages speak of this reality. We'll get to some of those later on. But John 6 is a great place to start. I picked this text because it's short. It's succinct and it's so sweet to the soul, isn't it? To read of Jesus' promise and assurance that whoever is given to him, he will never lose. And so, the first thing that this discourse of Jesus teaches us about the covenant of redemption is its place. That's the first point. We want to consider the place of the covenant of redemption. Where and, and when did this covenant Take place. Well, look again at what Jesus says there in verse uh, 38. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Where does it take place? In heaven. This, for one, places uh, the covenant outside of our world. It took place outside of this world as, as we know it. And so we're reading about God's proper dwelling place. When he talks about heaven, he's not talking about the skies. He's not talking about outer space. He's talking about that realm which is natural to God, the place where he dwells, the heavenly places, the spiritual realm. And to recognize that this covenant is established outside of our world shows that it is an entirely free choice of God to enter into it and to execute it. That is to say, there's nothing that we did as a human race Uh, There's nothing that any of his creatures have done that forced God's hand to enter in to this covenant of redemption. Now, of course, the term redemption assumes something, right? That we need to be redeemed from something and that something is sin. But our sin did not force God to make the covenant. He could have chosen just to let us rot uh, under the curse that our sin brought upon us. But in grace, from his seat in the heavenly places where he sees all, where he can do all things, God freely chose to enter into a covenant that would end in our salvation. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, section 1, says this in part, The distance between God 
and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness or as their reward unless by some voluntary condescension on God's part. That's the language of our confession. And then it goes on to say, and he has been pleased to express that condescension by way of covenant. All of God's covenantal dealings are part of his voluntary, his free choice to condescend to us, to come down out of the heavenly places into this earth and to interact with us. So nothing happened on earth that forced Christ to come down. Rather, we need to think of the covenant redemption in this sense that in the glorious places uh, of heaven, God's rightful dwelling place, the place that, that he has always lived, but he's going to welcome us into in the, in the next life. But from that place, entirely removed from, undisturbed by evil and wickedness and, and the, the sin of this world and the problems of this world, entirely unaffected by these things, God, choo- God chose to come out of that blessedness and into the muck and the mess of our life, to come and be, as it were, disturbed and affected by sin and sorrow. Why? To save us. That's what this covenant teaches us. It's a free choice of God to save his elect. The other way that we know that God's hand was was in no way forced to save us is because the covenant didn't just take place outside of this world, but also outside of time. When did it take place? Before time even began. That is to say, before we ever had a chance to affect the outcome. To say that For Jesus to say, I've come down from heaven, not only places the covenant outside of the world, but also outside of time. And that's a humbling thing to consider for several reasons. For one, it humbles um, the human mind to try to conceive, which we can only ever try to, we'll never be successful at, but, but to try to conceive of things that happen outside of time. We are time-bound creatures. Everything that we know, everything that we've ever experienced takes place in time. We are made in time. We live in time. We're bound by time. But now we're talking of the actions of a God who is outside of time. He's the immortal God. The eternal God, the everlasting God. That's humbling to think of that. But it also humbles us because it takes salvation entirely out of our hands. Think about it. If God determined to save you before you were born, before your parents were born or your grandparents were born, before this country was born, before even the world was born, that means that you have no honor to claim when it comes to why you're saved. Now, that can kind of hurt, huh? Ouch. But no, 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 this is good news. We want it this way. Because if salvation depended upon us, we could never be saved. We're so weak, so feeble, so easily gone astray, so, so sinful, so prone to wander. Don't you feel it? And yet, an eternal God has devised an eternal plan, and so we are saved. Does this kind of love humble you? The knowledge of such love that that was set on you in eternity past before you could do anything to earn it or to lose it. How can we comprehend 
such love. Any earthly comparison is weak, to say the least, but I wonder if maybe we might find just a faint, a flickering illustration to help us understand this when we think of parents and their love for their children. Could it be said that parents love their children before they know them? I think so. I think so. Parents dream of having children. They love the children they don't yet have, that they hope the Lord will one day give them. And then when they discover that that they're pregnant, well, now that dream has become a reality and they're in love with this child, even though they still haven't met this child, they haven't touched this child, and yet they're in love with this child. And then they begin to prepare, right? Nesting, getting the nursery ready. Isn't that work a sign of love for somebody that they haven't even met yet? And yet all that work, that's really just over the span of some weeks or some months. The sign of love to prepare a place of safety and and, and comfort for their yet unborn child. And yet God has been preparing a place for you and for me a lot longer than a few weeks or for a few months. The covenant of redemption teaches us that he's been preparing for us before time began. Could it be said that that God loves you before he knows you? Well, in a sense, we can't even say that, can we? Because he's always known you. He's always known you. And he loves you with a love, yes, that will never end, but we can even say with a love that never started either. It's always been there. What a thought. For eternity, God was and is and will be contemplating you with love in Christ Jesus. And so, the covenant of redemption teaches us, since it took place outside of this world and outside of time, that the heart of God is eternally and freely overflowing with love towards sinners who are claimed by Christ. Let me say that one more time. The covenant of redemption teaches us, since it took place outside of this world and outside of time, that God's heart is a heart that is eternally and freely overflowing with love for sinners claimed by Christ. Now that part is is key, though, to be claimed by Christ, because the covenant of redemption isn't teaching us that God has this eternal and undying and unending and and never-beginning love for all sinners. It's sinners who are claimed by Christ, sinners who are represented by Christ, sinners who will be robed with his righteousness, justified by faith in Christ. And so let's turn to another text, Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there with me where we're told of this, that it has to be Christ who secures this kind of eternal love for us. We heard part of this in the call to worship, but let's look at some more verses there in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And I want you to pay attention to the prepositions. Beginning verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, before God. How can we be holy before God? Because we are in God's Son, in Christ. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Christ we are blessed. And yet again, we read in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. For the covenant of redemption to mean anything to you, you need to be in him, in the one through whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our trespasses. So that means that we can't understand this covenant apart from the incarnation, apart from the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh. And so that leads us to our second consideration this morning. We looked at the place of this covenant, now the parties of the covenant, that is to say, Who was this covenant made between? Who does it involve? And if you look back to our text in John 6, you see there's an emphasis on the Son and the Father. Jesus says that he came not to do his own will, but the will of him who who sent me. That's what he says. And other texts speak in a similar way. John 5, 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father sent me. John 5, 43. I have come in my Father's name, or especially the high priestly prayer. John 17, beginning in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. This is all covenantal language. Christ coming to fulfill a promise, a commitment made between he and his father. And so well, we ask the question, what happened at Christmas? Uh, why did the second person of the Trinity become man? Why was Jesus born? And, and the answer is to submit himself to the father, to take up the work that his father had given him, to do his divinely appointed chores, we could say. Jesus, as a son, always did what his father commanded him, boys and girls. Now, we want to remember that there's nothing that is less God about Jesus than the father. All members of the Trinity are equal in power and glory. That is a a formulation that the church has been um, holding fast to since the third century. That they're one in essence, equal in power and and glory and, and in majesty. And yet... Even though, listen to me, even though the Son is just as glorious, just as mighty, just as powerful, just as magnificent as the Father, even though this is true, the Son willingly submits to the Father. He lays aside His glory that is His due, and He becomes a lowly servant. You know Philippians 2. It's a well-known passage. Did you know it's about the covenant of redemption? Hear it anew in that light. Philippians 2, beginning verse 6, that Jesus Christ, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus was born in a manger, rejected by men, suffered a derision and mocking in this life and ultimately killed on a cross all because why because he made a promise he entered into a covenant agreement with his father and that was to save you and the question today is do you believe that 
There was a blueprint. There's a game plan that Jesus was sticking to in his earthly mission. That's what he's saying. I've come to do the will of him who sent me. I have a, I have a plan. I have a purpose. There's a reason that he would look to Jerusalem and know that it meant his own gruesome death on a cross and yet be determined, set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem and march on undeterred to his own death. It was all according to plan, determined before the beginning of time. And yet when the fullness of time had come, born under the law, born of a woman, Jesus comes into this world and the plan is executed and the mission is accomplished. Why do you think he says it is finished? He had a job to do and he did it for you and for me. That plan, that job, was secured by a promise, a, a covenant. The Savoy Declaration of Faith, that was a 1658 document, says this, that it pleased God and his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, for him to be the mediator between God and man. Now, of course, we cannot divide the works of Uh, or we can't separate or divide the works of the members of the Trinity from one another. The Spirit is involved in this covenant as well. The Spirit is the one who overshadows the Virgin Mary so that the Son can be conceived, and He's the one who anoints, the the Spirit anoints Jesus Christ to to perform the the task that's been given Him. Hebrews 9 says that through the Spirit He lifted up Himself to God as a sacrifice on the cross. The Spirit is in every, every way imaginable involved with this plan of redemption. Even as it comes to us personally, Ephesians 1 goes on to say, In Him, you also, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes all that work that Christ accomplished and credits it to our account. Makes it count for us. So that what Jesus did, it's as though you did it. The covenant of redemption teaches us that our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, have each committed themselves to secure our salvation. They determined this before the world began. They executed it in real space and time in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And they are keeping us secure until he comes again. That's really the promise That Jesus made in the covenant. Did you notice that back in our text in John 6? Why has he come from heaven to do the will of his father? Well, what's his father's will? Well, we read in verse 39. That I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. But raise it up on the last day. We've been talking about it really this whole sermon. But just to drive home the point here. We want to consider finally the promise of the covenant of redemption. What's it all about? And if I can put it this way, it's about Jesus saving you and ensuring that you're always saved. It's about, it's about becoming gods and always remaining gods. That is God's possession. It's a plan formed in eternity that secures your place in eternity. Secures it. Nothing can change it. Do you remember the the slogan of covenant theology we looked at last week? I will be their God and they shall be my people. Repeated dozens of times throughout the scripture. Well, John 6 is Jesus' own take on that. I shall lose nothing of all that he's given me. And to belong to Jesus means you are one of those precious people who can say, 
God is mine and I am his. To be kept by Christ is to be one of God's people. And so I hope you are seeing that to know this covenant matters. It will give you all kinds of peace, all kinds of assurance. To know that your salvation was planned confirms God's love for you, that you weren't saved begrudgingly, on a whim. God determined to save you. To know that your salvation was planned, that, that the work of Christ had a blueprint for him to follow, that should also give you the assurance that the rest of your life has a plan too. What does Jesus say? Not only that he will never lose those who are given to him, but that he'll raise them up on the last day. You can have confidence that that is true. Because when God makes a plan, he sticks to it. You know what's interesting about those blueprints downstairs? If you look at them closely, they actually don't match with reality. With, with the building as we know it. There's a room missing. Uh, a room that was on the blueprints that we don't have. It's where it was across the office and meant to be uh, next to the kitchen. Instead, they expanded the kitchen. The kitchen was laid out differently. Also, the office was laid out differently. We also, in the, according to the blueprints, there was never meant to be a bathroom under the steps where we have our, our men's room. I'm sure glad they added that, though. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know were these changes that the builders made as they were working on the project or renovations made later on, uh, years later, perhaps. Things changed. Plans were altered. And that happens with all human endeavors. But, friends, God's blueprint for salvation is perfectly designed And it is perfectly executed. So know this today. Know this. That if you have placed your faith in Christ, it is because in eternity God has placed His love upon you. And that means you can know today, you can have assurance today, you can say and sing today because of the covenant of redemption that I will never No, never, no, never be forsaken of my God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an eternal plan, a free plan of yours that reveals to us your heart, your desire to save sinners purely by grace alone. And if we are saved, not by anything that we have done, we believe we will stay saved, not by anything we have done, but by your grip upon us in Christ Jesus. And that though we may taste death, Jesus Christ promises us that he will raise us up on the last day. Give us faith in your word, the promises of your word. For you are God, and you never lie. Give us a wholehearted trust and obedience to you, for you well deserve it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.